0: Good morning, family. Is everybody doing well today? Isn't it been wonderful to just experience the Lord's moving in our nation? What we trust is God's faithfulness that we are busy seeing come to pass. I think it's right for us to continue to pray and trust the Lord that His will be done. So can we agree in a prayer again today and just commit our nation and entrust and, and everything that is going on into His hands today? So let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that what you have said you will do, you always do, Lord. And we put our hope and our faith in you, and we trust in you. Thank you, Lord, for changes that are taking place. But we want to commit every one of those changes. We want to commit our leaders. We want to commit our new president, Father, into your hands. And we pray, Holy Spirit, we trust that your will be done, that ultimately, Father, you would use men to establish righteousness, justice, and equity in our nation so that our people can live in the peace and in the prosperity that you have made possible to us, Father. And we pray for your goodness to come upon our nation in new ways, more than ever before. And we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Everybody say? Amen. 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 It's good to be together this morning and continue to share the word with you. As you've been, those of you that have been with us, we are busy with a series entitled The Disciples' Quest. And we're just considering as a community what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ and how do we follow after Christ and make sure that we are walking the path that He wants us to walk. So last week, um, uh, the first week we introduced it, last week um, Neil took us through Ephesians 1 and today we're going to go into Ephesians 2 and I'm going to follow a similar process as Neil did last week and just take us through the scripture from the top to the bottom and just do some application and uh, some talking through it. Uh, so, if you have a device with you or your Bible with you, please go to Ephesians chapter two this morning. We will have the verses on the screen also. Uh, so, but if you want to follow in your own uh, on your own Bible, it'll be really good if you do that. Um, we do this for a very specific reason that we apply the Scripture in this way, and uh, we take the, the risk of of it being a little bit, you know, a lot of Scripture reading. But uh, it simply comes from this belief that ultimately each of us the. The way we grow the best in our relationship with the Lord, in our maturity as believers, is through the scripture. Can I have an amen? Amen. It's each of us engaging with the scripture. It's each of us. So our, our plan as preachers, as we present here, is to equip you and to enable you to give you some tools in your hand so that as you read the Scripture, you can meditate through it. The Holy Spirit can speak to you through the Scripture as He's written it. And it's therefore that we take a bit of time and we, we spend it with each portion of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, I want to just give you a little bit of an orientation for Ephesians 2, and then we'll carry on. Remember, we said Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is basically two sections. Ephesians 1, 2, 3 is about what Christ has done for us, what we have received in Christ, where we are positioned in Christ, whereas Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 mainly focus on what does that mean now for the way we live. So what has Christ done in us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and what Christ wants to do in us and through us in 4, 5, and 6 so we are positioned in Christ, and Neil did a really great job last week of just walking us through all those wonderful blessings that we've received, every spiritual blessing that we received in Christ. And uh, Ephesians 2, Paul takes that now and he says, let me take you on a bit of a progression. If you have received all of these wonderful spiritual blessings that we spoke about in Ephesians 1, what does that mean? What is that, how, do, how do we see that in reality in our lives? And uh, so I talk about the progression of Ephesians 2, and he begins with a p- application for us, and he talks about how it, what it means to you and me individually. Then after he's spoken about it for us individually from verse 1 to 10, then from verse 11 to 19, he takes it, and he takes it a bit broader, and he says, if this is true for us individually, what does it mean in terms of Jews and Gentiles together? And then from there, he progresses further, and he says, then what does it mean for the church of the Lord Jesus universal? So it's a progression that begins with the individual, then goes to the unification in one, in one body of Jews and Gentiles, and then it goes further into what it means for the body of Christ all over the world. So that's the progression we're going to follow a little bit this morning as we read these portions of Scripture, and that is what I will make some comments on today. So won't you jump in with me in Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 1 to 10. I'm going to read all 10 of those verses for you. So it really helps if you follow with me, then it keeps your mind focused and engaged. Otherwise, you're going to start thinking about what's for lunch and your afternoon nap that you're hopefully planning. So let's, let's focus on the scripture. Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul writes, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You're used to living sin just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful natures. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God, so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ. Christ from the dead it is only by God's grace that you have been saved for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. So Paul starts talking with us in the same place as we began this year. In January, we had a couple of messages that we spoke about sin. And just this reality that every one of us is born in sin and everyone, every human being has this sin problem and the scripture talks about a sinful nature, that sin is our predisposition. And this puts us at enmity with God. We become enemies of God because God's standard for our lives is perfection. He wants us to be perfect because he's perfect. And that's what he expects of us, but we fall short. We can't do it. We fail miserably. Even when we try our very best, we just cannot please God because we cannot live up to His standard. And the law of the Old Testament came and, and defined for us the standard of God, but actually to show us how incapable we are of doing what God expects of us. And, and that's where the word hamartia comes from, and we spoke about that, about, which is a, a biblical word for sin, to fall short of the glory of God, that, that, that we are not able, because of our rebellion and sin, to do and live the lives that God has intended for us to live. And this is our problem. But, Paul writes here, and this is the part we're going to focus on a bit more, but because of God's great love for us, He didn't leave us in this state. He didn't reject us. He didn't say, well, you chose to fall in sin and off you go, do your own thing. He came and he found a way for us to come back into him, to come back to the place of being part of his family, of being restored to him and to be able to live the lives. And we've used that he wants us to live. We used a scale a couple of weeks ago to display that. That on the one side of the scale, if I, if you, I know this gets in a bit of a way of the people over here, so... uh, but I hope you can see. So on the one side of the scale we have where God comes and says, you will never measure up to my standards. You'll never be able to do what I want you to do. So what I'm going to do, God says, is I'm going to do it on your behalf. And in Christ, Paul writes and he says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Neil spoke last week about how in Christ, God came and did these amazing things for us where he chose us in him. He chose us. God created us, but he also chose us. He said, I want you. I want you to be part of my family. And every person that believes in Christ, he says, I've chosen you. He's not only chose us, but he adopted us. He brought us into his family. Not because we deserve it. Not because we we had a claim to it. But because of his great love and compassion and mercy for us. He said, I am going to adopt you and make you my very own. He redeemed us, brought us back from the curse of the law. And he said, you are now forgiven. You are, you are received back into my family. And all of these things, and he blessed us with every spiritual blessing that you can find in, this, in Christ. We become co-heirs with Christ, part of the kingdom of God. This is everything that God has done for us. And this is the beginning of the journey of the disciples' quest, is to first understand what God has done for me. How God has made it possible for me to be reconciled with him, to become part of his family. But then the quest of the disciple carries on. And remember, we spoke about this part in in the Greek, the axios. In in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, and he says, live a life worthy. Live a life worthy of the calling. Live a life worthy of what Christ has received. And what, what our journey and quest as a disciple is all about is how do we Allow God to do the works that he did here for that to practically manifest in our lives so that his love for us, his adoption of us, his choosing of us, his redemption of us starts changing the way we live and you practically start seeing our behavior and our actions change to the point where you start seeing, and this is what the Bible means when it says worthy, is that there comes the disciples' beliefs are matched by the disciples' actions. Amen. Do you believe that should be that because I believe that Jesus died for me, because I believe that He paid the price for my sin, because I believe that I'm forgiven and that I'm forever united with God and that I'm a part of His family, that that should change the way I live also. Amen? So that's the disciples' quest. How this that God did for me on this side is matched by this that practically now becomes my life. And this is the journey that each of us are on. So the little saying we have is this. The disciples' beliefs must be matched by the disciples' actions. And I think this is what Paul refers to in the last verse of Ephesians 2. He says this. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. Don't you want to look to the person next to you and say, you look like a masterpiece to me. Some of you are water paint. Paintings nice and smooth. Some of you are oil paintings, a little bit more cracked, you know, a, a little bit more faded, perhaps. But you're a masterpiece. This is what the Bible says For we are God's masterpiece. You and I, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. You are a masterpiece that is being recreated, made new as a masterpiece. The word Stradivarius should be familiar to most of us, or the name. refers to the Stradivari family that lived in the 17th and 18th century, that became so well known for the quality of their workmanship, for the skill of their workmanship, that they displayed through the stringed instruments they made, whether there was cellos or, or, or violins. or They made these amazing instruments. That it's become the sort of a name for quality. That if you say that vacuum cleaner is a Stradivarius, it doesn't mean you can play music on it. It just means it is absolute quality. I don't know if you can make that, you know... Uh, sorry Mika for doing that I probably transgressed but some, it was such a mark of quality It's said of the Stradivari family that they, the instruments that as people have studied it some people have found that it is of such quality that, this, that, that what we understand and know about uh, acoustics scientifically is unexplained how their instruments can actually do certain things because of the quality they were master workmen they were craftsmen of note And this is the picture that we have of God in the scripture. The word in the Greek here is poiema. And literally translated it means a thing that is made, workmanship that displays the quality of the craftsman that is imparted during the process of making. So through the quality of something that is made, you actually see the qualities of the person who made it. You and I are God's crafts. That a master craftsman, has made and is making to display who he is last year in July in the holiday time in the school holiday time my one son and I we decided we're going to build something so we made what is called a chuck box if any of you have been in the scouts you may know what a chuck box is a chuck box is is a box that you build for when you go camping to put in all your cutlery and your pots and your pans and some of your stuff that you want it's like a kitchen box that you make so we decided we're going to make a chuck box. So I took a picture of one, and I drew a plan out of it. I, I made this nice plan. I remembered my woodwork days from school, and I drew up this plan and all the measurements and everything, and then went to a store and bought some wood and had it cut according to the panels that I wanted and everything. And then I said to Keenan, you and I, we're going to build this chuck box. Yes, we're going to do this. So we built the chuck box, and it was very impressive when we were finished with it. We were very impressed with it, at least. And uh, you know, when you look at it, you think, I, you know, because I know me and I know my limitations and I know him and I know his limitations. So this was a little bit of a father-son exercise of trying to help him upskill some of his abilities because he's not the most practical of our children. But uh, as we did it, we stood back and we went, wow, what an amazing checkbox. At first glance, it looks so impressive. And even other people that see it, when they first see it, they go, wow, that's quite amazing. But when you look at it a second time, you start realizing that this was no master craftsman that built this. Some of the panels are quite skewed. Some of it doesn't quite measure up. And, and, and it's a little bit. And, and the biggest mistake of the box is when I made the measurements, we have a, a small microwave and a little stove, like a two-plate stove kind of thing that we take on holiday with us when we go camping. Because one shouldn't suffer when one goes camping. It should still be a fun experience. So I took these two things, put them next to each other, and measured So that when we put the chuck box in the back of the combi, that that those two things fit on the chuck box. And then they've got their place to travel and it's got a bit of a protection for them and everything. So I thought, brilliant. The mistake I made is I never measured the size of the combi's boot. (laughs) So the first time we put it in, we couldn't close the boot Um, because it, it would have been really good if it fitted sideways for the best use of space. Now it fits in, but not sideways. I have to put it up against the back seat. And so it works, but it's just, if I was a better craftsman, I would have gotten that right. So you can see in the craft, the thing that I made, you can see my impatience, you can see my lack of knowledge, you can see my lack of experience, you can see all of that in this box that I built. Now I'm still impressed by the fact that I built it. But okay, that's just me. So God builds, but God is a master craftsman. And you is the, you are the pinnacle of the display of his craftsmanship. The scripture says when we look at creation, we see something of who God is. But his revelation comes through you and I. Christ as the high point of what it means in you matter in humanity, sorry, but even in you and I, particularly in this, that God is restoring us back because God built you and me, he made you and me with his hands, he breathed life into us and we were this part of his creation that he invested the most in But then we fell in sin as Paul describes and we became broken and rebellious and we we lost the, the perfect image of God upon us. We lost His glory. But now in Christ, He is restoring us and He's making us new. So not only did He once make us, now He's remaking us back into the perfect image, restoring us. And there's a master craftsman that is at work with you right now. A person that is perfect in what He does. And His perfection is on display through your life and my life. Look to the person next to you and say, you are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship. And it is because we believe that, because we believe that God is working in each of us, that we can make this statement that we use as a little subtitle to our series The disciples' beliefs must be matched by the disciples' actions. Because God not only positioned you in Christ with everything you need to be a disciple, to be a follower of Him, He's also working in you as a craftsman. And who particularly is the craftsman that is working in your life? The Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go, but the Holy Spirit will come and He will guide you into all truth. So right now, the, the craftsman that is working in us in the tr- of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is busy in each one of our lives, busy crafting that that which we have received in Christ also is matched by that which we do in Christ. And that's what we believe. The disciples' actions must match the disciples' beliefs. But I want to put a little disclaimer around that. That does not mean that if the disciples' actions does not mean the disciples' beliefs, that that which he believes is not true. Can I say that again? If something in your life here on this side, some action, some of your practice as a Christian does not yet measure up to the perfect work God does in you, does that mean that this is not true what God has done in you? No. And that's the trap the enemy wants us to come to. The enemy will do that with you and he will say, "Ah, oh, you say you believe in Christ. You say you're a Christian, but look at your life. It doesn't match with what you say you believe. It doesn't add up." That's exactly what he did with Jesus when he tempted him in the in the desert. Remember when the enemy came in, Mar- in Matthew 4, you can go read it. He said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, what did he want Jesus to doubt? He wanted Jesus to doubt this side of the scale. He wanted Jesus to doubt his position. He wanted Jesus to doubt his, his place in God. He said, if you are the son of God, then you will say to these stones, then prove it with an action that you take. If this is true that you are the Son of God, surely your actions must prove it. Now, yes, that's true. But what do I do when my actions don't measure up to what God has done for me? And this is where the deception of the enemy comes into our lives. Because what the enemy then does is, let's say, for instance, we know God loves us perfectly. And you and I, we've received the perfect love of God. But yet I don't love perfectly. Yet I still reject. Yet I still harm. Yet I still fail and disappoint people. And so whenever I, you know, when I fail, the enemy will come to me and say, yeah, you look at you. You say that God loves perfectly and that you have received God's perfect love, but you don't show it. Therefore, what you believe cannot be true. How do I deal with that? You see, in our human nature, what we then want to do is we want to take the the love that we're failing in and we want to hold that up and say, okay. Okay. Now I'm going to work at becoming better at loving so that my love you know, measures up to what God has done for me. And, and, and I read everything I can about love and, and, and I, I listen to all the music I can about how God loves and, and I, I, I practice and I say, I'm gonna love better and I'm gonna do better and I, and I, and I discipline myself and, I, and you know I do everything I can so that I can love better. The moment I do that, I'm setting myself up for failure. Because if I could have done this in the first place, then why did I need Jesus? Because now I try and love, and I try and be better at love, and and I try and build my character to to be worthy of what Christ has done for me, and, and I can't. It'll go well for a while, and then I fail spectacularly. And we've spoken about that before. So how do I do that? How do I be the disciple whose actions matches their beliefs? Not by focusing on the action side, but by focusing on the Belief side. If my actions in love fail what God's love is, it's because I yet not yet have been fully loved by Him and have not yet fully understood and come into His love. So I take this side of it, what God has done for me, my position in Christ, and I say to the enemy, yes, you're right, my actions don't quite measure up to what God has done for me, so let me focus on what God has done for me. And I, and I consider, I pray, I meditate, I seek the Lord at Wednesday night seeking meeting. And in your own time, you seek the Lord and you say, Lord, show me your love for me. Let me understand your love, not only for me, but for other people. And I allow the meditations of the love of God to fill my heart. Because the scripture says, Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, this is the fruit of the spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Did he say that these are the fruits of the Christian? Love, peace, patience, kindness. Is it my job as a Christian to love? No. It is the work of the Spirit to produce the love of God in my life and through my life. That's why Jesus said, You will know a tree by its fruit. Fruit is a result of that which flows through the roots and the trunk of the tree. It's because it's positioned in something, it's rooted in something, therefore you see the fruits of it. It's because of that nature which is created in by what it is. So when the love in my life fails, I go, Lord, let me know your love. And the more I grow in that, the more the scales gets balanced and the worthiness comes in. Because then what God does is He takes this that He's done in me and He takes it and He does it through me. And that's the journey of my life. That's what it means to be a masterpiece, to be God's workmanship, is this consistent process where God is working. And that's true, whether it's a character issue or even an issue of my calling. Because sometimes my calling, the enemy will come to me and say, if you're really a child of God, you should be leading others to Christ. You should be sharing your faith with others. And you know that you're struggling. So how do you deal with that? Do you say, okay... I've got to lead others to Christ and I'm going to push myself and I'm going to... Or is it that you come to Christ and say, Lord, continue to work in me. And then I intentionally, it's not a passive thing that I do, it's a very active process. That's why we talk about the disciples' quest. Because it requires me to step in, to take steps of faith, to obey God, to sacrifice, to heal, to surrender. It requires all these steps of mine. And as I pursue what God wants, both in my character and in my calling, His works will be displayed through me. So I am God's workmanship, made by His hands, being reworked into representing Him, to show Him, to show His character. But not only are we that individually, because we display some of that, each of us. Each of us displays something of God's workmanship. But the progression is that it begins with me, but then you really start seeing it manifesting between me and other people. And particularly within the church, first of all. So Paul writes... The second step he takes, he says, first of all, I'm God's workmanship. Now he sees, but then if that's true, if I'm God's workmanship, if God's working in my life to love, the first place you will see that is within the body of Christ, the love that we will experience there, and particularly between Jews and Gentiles. And he writes this and he starts talking about how in Christ the two have become one. Now we must remember the history of this time. When Jesus left, he said, you will go and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So the gospel started in Jerusalem. The first Christians, the first people of the way, the first people that followed Christ came out of a Jewish heritage. And they just worshipped Christ as they always would in their Jewish heritage. They just made it about Christ. So they still went to the synagogue, they still used the same songs, they still you know, used much of the same liturgy and of the same way they used to worship with, you know, as Jews, they would just now use that to worship Christ. The same cultural you know, artifacts, the same cultural ways, they just applied and brought Christ into that. But then the gospel started spreading, particularly through the life of Paul who was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. So Gentile people started becoming Christians. Now, Gentile people didn't come from a Jewish heritage. They didn't go to the synagogue. They didn't use the Jewish songs and the Jewish artifacts and the Jewish prayers. They came, from a lot of them, from pagan religions and idol worship. So they started coming into the body of Christ, and a controversy arose. Because the Jews started saying, no, no, a real Christian is somebody that is circumcised. It is somebody that uh, you know, practices certain of the Jewish heritage and keeps that heritage. So they started expecting of the Gentile believers to say, before you can become a Christian, you must first be circumcised and become a son of Abraham. And even Paul and Peter fought about this at a stage. This became a hot topic within the church. This became a point of conflict that we see in the book of Acts as these two. Now what does it mean to be a Christian? How does a Gentile become a Christian? And, and what does it look like? And how do we worship? And very practical things started to become points of conflict. Now Paul takes the next step. He says, if it is true that you are God's workmanship, it must be displayed in this relationship first between Jews and Gentiles. And then he carries on and he talks a little bit about it. He says in verse 11, let's read together. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ, for Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Paul says to the Gentiles, he says, first, the Jews were insiders and the Gentiles were outsiders. The Jews were included and the Gentiles were excluded. The Jews had, no, had God and, and hope. The Gentiles had no God and no hope. Jews were near, Gentiles were far. He says, that was what it was. But then Christ came. And Christ is the only way to God. There is one door to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the gate. There's only one way that you can come to God. It doesn't matter what your heritage is, where you come from. There's one way in. You can come as a Jew or you can come as a Gentile. It makes no difference. There's one way into God, and that's in Christ and through Christ. So however your path led you to the door doesn't really matter. But if you want to get close to God, you have to go through that door, and that door is Christ. So whether you're a Jew that were near, that we're understood the revelation of God's law, you still have to go through Christ. Whether you were a Gentile far away from God, didn't understand God's law, you still have to go through Christ. So Christ is the unifier. Christ is the one that we all go through. Sometimes people think that Christians are exclusive because they say that all all roads don't lead to Rome. You can't come to God through any religion or any prophet or anything. You, You have to come through Christ. Christ is the only way to God. And yes, it may sound exclusive, but can I tell you, it is that which gives us unity, that there's one door. You don't come to God through any door. You come to God through one door. And that means that all of us are treated the same. The the foot of the cross is a level playing field. All of us need Jesus. And it is in that that Christ is the great unifier. So Paul says, this is the wonder. That it doesn't matter your heritage. It doesn't matter your previous disposition. It doesn't matter. Just come to Christ and give your heart to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Then you find access to God. So what he's in in effect saying is if the Jews and the Gentiles that come to Christ cannot experience love for one another, then this, what we believe, we are not living it to be true. The first place that you see the truth and the reality and the impact of what God has done for us is in the fact that Jews and Gentiles can now become one in Christ. Can come together and worship the same God. And that we have love and grace for one another. That the Jews don't look at the Gentiles anymore and go, you uncircumcised heathens, and reject them and be aloof towards them. And the Gentiles don't look at the Jews and think, oh, you are just a bunch of stuck-up, judgmental, law-obsessed people. But that in Christ, The love of God is brought through us. This love that we received, I have been loved. I've been chosen. I've been adopted. That spirit of adoption we extend to others also. That's the first place that you should see that this is real. Then he carries on in the last bit. And he takes this even a step further. So the progression goes, I am God's workmanship. He works in me his perfect work. That is displayed through the two of us coming together, Jews and Gentiles. And now it's taken even further into the church universal. In Ephesians 2, verse 20 to 22, the last couple of verses. Together, together, Jews and Gentiles, all people, even those that weren't Jews, even those that, you know, whatever, anybody you can think of, we are His house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles also are also being made part of his dwelling, this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. He says, not only am I God's workmanship, not only has God in Christ brought Jews and Gentiles together, but God is now busy building a new temple. Not a temple made by human hands, not a temple that is made of of brick and mortar and wood, but a temple that exists of the people of God that have been brought together. A temple that gives glory to God and honors Him and displays His workmanship, that displays the perfection of of His ability through the fact that we are being brought together and built up and joined together in this temple. If you can picture that. This place of worship that is built for God with each of us. Each of us is part of that. It is our togetherness. And Ephesians 3 verse 10, next week, Apostle Lutola will be speaking about Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3 verse 10, he says, For this is the purpose of the church, to make known the manifold wisdom of God, Christ Jesus, to the principalities and powers in the air. Do you know that when the church of the Lord Jesus gathers... It proclaims to the heavenlies that despite all of our differences and our heritage and our past and where we come from, we have become united under one, and that is Christ. And this is the ultimate display in this earth of the reality of who Christ is, is that we come together to worship Him. Augustine Augustine said that for him it is the greatest miracle that every Sunday Christians come together to worship God. One God. And we must never underestimate the power of our unity in Christ. But it is only in Christ. So the Gentiles that were far is now part of the body of Christ. The Jews that were near can now be part of the body of Christ. But only in Christ. If we allow Him to do what He wants to do in our lives. If we choose and surrender and submit to His working in our lives. We are the temple. We are the temple. And and this is what we've got to put first. I love the fact that this morning we sang that song, Jesus be the center. Be the center. Because that's what it's really about. It's that Jesus is at the center. It's not about me. It's not about my heritage. It's not about my preference. It's not about where I come from. We all come here together and we fall on our knees and we we say, Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. Because the church is not about me. It's not my preference. It's not my church. It's his church. And we come and we lay all of that stuff down and we say, Lord, so that you can be glorified, so that you can be honored. Imagine what it was like in those days for Jews and Gentiles to worship together. When the Jews said, no, 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 we've got a good song. Hava. I don't know if that was a song they sang, you know. That's the only Jewish song I know. Hava Nagila. It's the only Jewish song I could know. Imagine the Jewish folk said, no, this is how you worship God. You sing Jewish songs. And then the, and then the, the Gentile songs would say, ah, pff, we don't know that song. We've got it. And I don't know what songs they would. But so in the church, new songs had to be written. That were songs that were about Christ. And, and slowly their heritage had to become less. And their focus on Christ had to be increased. I think of our own city. We live in an amazing city in terms of the unity of the body of Christ. There's an amazing unity move in our city happening. Other parts of the world actually talk about Pretoria as a a place to watch in terms of the body of Christ and its unification. So much work has been done. About different churches being being able to come together and love God together. I, I lead a fraternal in the centurion area. And so we do that. On regular occasions we get pastors just to come and have breakfast together, and church leaders, just to have breakfast together. We worship a bit, sing a couple of songs, worship, and then somebody shares the word with us. And it's awesome, it's so wonderful that we can do that. But every now and then, we have to remind them that it's really about unity. Because sometimes we'll sing a song in our gathering, and some of the guys that come from a more contemplative tradition will go, I don't like this raising of the hands and clapping nonsense. Why must we always sing songs that are so happy? Can't we just, you know, think sing songs that think about Christ and about God, and and, and then and then we say, okay, sorry about that. So we sing a bit more of a contemplative style of singing, and then the charismatics, crusomatics, charismaniacs, the other pastors go, no, why must we be so sour and dull? And you know, why can't we sing happy songs and just rejoice? And you know, and we have to go, okay, okay this guy's remember it's about Christ and the unity of the body, so. Can we be mature and can we absorb each other's preferences? Can we we absorb each other's, you know, heritage? I mean, in this church, we have a heritage. I can remember Pastor Ed. How many of you remember Pastor Ed speaking about Vazio Hoot? How many had, all the Adfielders can remember that. Pastor Ed spoke about why we don't wear hats to church. many of us came from a tradition where we wore hats to church and it became a negative thing for us so here they said we don't wear hats so if you're wearing a hat this morning bless you it's fine (laughs) great because that means you didn't come from that you don't it doesn't but for some there's a sensitivity a lot of us we never were allowed to wear ties for a period of time because it was like whoo we all have our preferences and our heritage and our story but it's not about that when we come together in a space like this this becomes a display of our absolute commitment and belief that Christ is the center. Christ is the center. So sometimes, you know, whether it's the sermon gets preached and that's part of the worship, the, the, the greeting outside, the fellowship, the technical guys, everything's part of the worship. Worship isn't just singing, it's everything. But sometimes you come and you say, "Mm, I don't quite like it that way. I don't like the word to be shared that way. I would prefer it if it was done another way. Bless you. Talk to me. Tell me. It would really be easier for me to receive the word if you do it this way. I have no problem with that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we can't dance to everybody's preference. We've got to be led by the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Led by the way I think the Spirit moves or led by the way you think the Spirit moves? Can you understand this becomes a bit tricky now all of that we can deal with we can all deal with everybody's preferences and find the ways to to be a blessing to everybody and hopefully you know touch everybody's, make it as comfortable we can for everybody so that nothing obstructs you from entering into the presence of the Lord and experiencing God we can do all of that if we agree on this one thing it's not about me it's about him Amen. then it's possible Amen. then it's very possible But the moment I make it about me, and we must watch this, it creeps in very subtly in our lives. It's about me. It's about my experience. It's about how I feel. The moment we become too much focused on that, we will break up the unity of the faith again. But the moment we all rally around and we say, I'm prepared to let go of certain of my convictions and preferences that from my heritage and from my background so that I can have the joy of worshiping with fellow believers and we can connect and find each other. And that's always a dynamic moving process. Sometimes you do it this way. Sometimes you go a little bit this way. I think the word chadman uses is the word tilt. Sometimes we tilt things a little this way because we, we want to collect and include some of these people. Then we tilt it a little bit this way because we, want to, we feel that some of these aren't feeling like they're connected. So, and we do this all the time. It's a very moving thing. But the heart of it is, Lord, we want to be led by your Spirit so that Christ is at the center. If we do that together, man, for this is the purpose of the church to make known the manifold wisdom of God, Christ Jesus, to principalities and powers in the air. Then we stand and we proclaim who God is. So if you come here on a Sunday and something I say, you don't quite like it, talk to me. Tell me. I didn't quite enjoy that. I think you should have done it differently. I'll, I'll repent say I'm so sorry. And I'll try to do it better next time. But love me and I love you. But let's preserve the bond of unity. Let's keep united in our faith. Let's keep standing strong in our faith because then we glorify Jesus. Then we exalt the name of Jesus. Then, not only am I God's workmanship, but together we become the temple on the day, the, the city on the hill that everybody looks to and says, Wow, Christ is real. I can see the character of Christ. I can see the the workmanship of Christ in in those people. Jesus said, they will know you, that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, by your love for one another. Not by the songs you sing, not by the buildings that you have, not by the way your liturgy is practiced, but by your love for one another. May we in this church love each other. May we love the rest of the body of Christ and respect and honor and celebrate them. Celebrate their traditions. Celebrate the way they express their love for Christ when it's different than ours. May we celebrate that so that the world will know Jesus really loves me and it has made all the difference in my life. I am very easy. Let me put it this way. It's very easy for me to be united to other people, whether it's culture that separates me, religious traditions, whether it's whatever that separates me from them doesn't really matter because christ is the center of it. worship guys will you join? i think we need to end with a good song chris i need to, we need to end at a place of unity is that okay won't you stand with me and we're going to sing a song they're going to come out soon any minute now just give them a moment i, I jumped on them I want to in this moment say so, such a great word of thanks to all our technical teams. People that built our stage behind there, you can see how wonderful that looks, that mountain that they built, our sound and media guys, our camera people, everybody, won't you just give them a really good round of applause and just say we appreciate them. We really appreciate them so much. Okay, guys, let's, let's raise our hands together this morning. I'm going to set us up, and they're going to lead us in a song, and then the service is finished. Father, we are your children. We are your workmanship. We are made to display your splendor and your glory. And thank you, Lord, that even though when we were broken in sin, so far from displaying your splendor, actually so ugly, you didn't give up on us. You said, I will remake you. And Jesus became the ugliness and became the epitome and showed our ugliness so that we can be made beautiful again. Thank you, Jesus, for your work of beauty in my life, for your work of beauty in our lives together, that as we come together, as we bow before you, something beautiful happens, and the name of Jesus is lifted up. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that in my life, my actions will match my beliefs. That my belief of the unity and of the love of Christ will be matched by the way I treat fellow believers, treat the body of Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. Just be with us this morning. I pray that as we sing this song, as we end now, that you will come Holy Spirit and just unite us together as only you can. We cannot unite ourselves, but you can. Come Holy Spirit, do a work of unity among us. As we end the service now and we're going to sing this song, you're welcome. If you want to come to the front for prayer, let us pray with you. If you want to help us for you to meet Jesus, let us pray with you that you can meet Jesus.